Welcome to the Business That Matters Spotlight. I'm Warren Coughlin, founder of this podcast and business coach to ethical entrepreneurs who want to build a business that matters. In short, I help you end chaos and gain control over your business so that you predictably and reliably achieve the profits, the lifestyle, and the impact you strive for through a team you can trust without the stress and frustration. When you experience this, you're more confidently able to make the world or just your corner of it a bit of a better place. At The Spotlight, we believe that every entrepreneur has a unique message that can positively impact the world and inspire others to do the same. Stick around to the end of the show. We'll reveal how you can be our next guest. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to the Business That Matters Spotlight. My name is Warren Coughlin, your host, and I am super excited for today's guest. Uh, Vanessa Barboni-Halak is the CEO of Another Tomorrow and has a really interesting background and is really doing a lot to contribute to the planet and to fashion and to consumers all at the same time. And so I'm really excited to hear her story and the lessons that she can share with you in helping your business. So welcome to the show, Vanessa. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Ah, me too. So listen, just let's just start with what is Another Tomorrow? So Another Tomorrow is an end-to-end sustainable, accessible luxury brand with a deep commitment to technology-enabled transparency and circular economy. So it's a little bit of a mouthful, but it really boils down to us believing that clothing is an asset and delivering that to our customer base in a holistically sustainable and transparent way and facilitating that product staying into the world as long as feasible. Nice. There is a lot there to unpack. A lot there to unpack, and I'm sure we will. So let's just start with what, how did you come up with the name? I think it must have some connection. Oh, yeah. So the the name was a great story. So early on at the very, very beginning, and and I knew nothing and no one uh, in fashion. And I was working with this fantastic uh, consultant who'd been the CMO for Calvin Klein. And she was really pushing me on the why behind the brand. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And what came out of my mouth was that gosh, if people could choose differently, they would be on a path to another tomorrow. And she said, ah, that's the name. And I said, really, that's the name? That doesn't sound like a fashion brand. And, um, you know, much like my first wedding dress, you know, you try on the right one first and then it takes you forever to circle back to it and buy it. Um, And that was the case with the name, you know, really waffled, explored a whole bunch of other things. But that was really what it was about at its core was making decisions today for the tomorrow you would want. That is, I love that. It's very, you know, there's a there's an old um, First Nations principle that says you make your decisions not for today, but for seven generations later. Yeah, absolutely. A, I love that. Now, just at a pure at a pure business level, who do you serve? Who are your customers? You know, how big is your team? What kind of geography do you serve? Yeah, sure. So we have customers in 46 out of 50 states and 32 countries uh, currently, which is you know something that I think surprises us because we're only a two-year-old business. Uh, so really pretty broad um, demographic base from a geographical standpoint. Um, our customer groups are kind of twofold. Number one is kind of, I would say, women in their mid-30s and up who are really starting to invest in high-quality pieces for their wardrobes. Um, and, you know, sort of at that point in their life cycle where that makes sense. And they really come to us for quality and design first. And I would say values um, is kind of like a close second, third um, to, to that. And a lot of that's because there's just really a growing awareness, I think, of the impact of fashion. And then we have a secondary group of customers who's a bit younger, um, starts a bit younger, kind of mid-20s and up. And we find that that customer is really explicitly looking for brands that are values aligned. And they view us as kind of best in class from kind of a B Corp sustainability, um, transparency perspective. And she'll sort of buy what she can, but maybe that's not the full range of the collection depending on sort of like where income is. And we're really excited that our resale channel will continue to expand that part of the, the customer base. And so do you, do you sell primarily through other retailers or is it direct? We are predominantly direct to consumer uh, as a business model. We do have one, um, currently one strategic wholesale partner on an international basis, which is Matches Fashion. And we're slowly starting to expand those channels because we truly believe that our customer base um, is global. So at a, 
at a prag pragmatic level, I'm sure you get this all the time, but you know, I'm a dumb guy who doesn't know fashion all that well. <laughs> so how do, you know, buying, buying, cause I've, I've looked at the site, you've got some beautiful pieces on there. Thank you. And so how do people make like sizing decisions? Like fashion is always, you can say you're a size X, but it fits differently on different people. Like, is there a reticence from people to buy online or do you have a way of facilitating that so it's easier? You know, people are, I think, accustomed to it at this at this stage. You know, the it's fashion was one of the last uh, kind of one of the last consumer industries where the portion of online purchases really ramped up dramatically over the last two years in the pandemic. Um, the truth is, you know, it's a little trial and error with a new brand every time. Uh, but given the, I would say the prolific nature of online shopping at this point, uh, there's a, a pretty low level of friction in terms of trying. Um, it's a real sticking point actually in the in the industry and in, in our business, and I'm sure we can get into this, is like there's a huge opportunity for these more tech uh, integrated fit uh, sort of fit solutions to help people bridge that, that body type and sizing gap. But the truth is the customer adoption rates are still really, really low and there's a ton of friction in making those work. So our return rates are pretty attractive relative to industry averages, but you know, it's still a thing. And we have a very, very active customer service team to help people make those uh, right decisions. And do you do you experience a lot of customer loyalty or people, do they try it once or do you, once they're there, they stick around for a while? Super loyal customer. That's one of the things that we really pride ourselves on. Um, and I think it really comes down to service as well as product. And I'm a big believer in that. So we're all about retention, 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 and building relationships for life because there's no reason why anyone should sort of cycle out of this brand. Um, so we really think about each customer as an individual and try and serve them as best possible. So we've had extremely high uh, return customer rates. Actually, on a monthly basis, it's slightly over 30%. Nice. So what is so a lot of people say service, service, service. What does that actually look like in an online high fashion clothing environment? What is what does good service look like to a to a buyer? Yeah. So for, for us, it's actually it's it's um, outreach after a point of purchase. So the, our team does a lot of follow up to check in and make sure that, you know, did you enjoy your purchase? Like, what did you think about your purchase? Can we help you? And you'd be amazed what you unearth actually in terms of information in that dialogue, as well as also just solutions. And it's frankly good for business. I mean, we've had instances where somebody's needed to exchange a product and they end up buying five more things just as a function right. of sort of that confidence of having that dialogue. So I think the tricky bit is obviously, you know, how do you scale that? You know, how do you scale that? And the reality is that some types of purchases require more handholding than others. I mean, t-shirt purchases are t-shirt purchases, right? There's not a whole lot of back and forth required for that. But if it's something like, you know, a structured um, blazer where you're trying to figure out, can you get it tailored, what have you, you know, it's really helpful to have that, that dialogue sometimes. Nice. And does that, just again, a lot of our listeners are starting up and, and building out their own businesses as well. How do you, like it sounds from what you said, you track your numbers well. Um, how do you manage the, how do you evaluate the cost structure of doing that? So for, for to provide that level of support, it obviously requires human support. So is it done on a, we figure our labor per, per unit or is it, how do you how do you come no, to no, that? It's, a, it's, a, it's a, such a good question. Um, you know, at this point, uh, we you know we're still scaling, and we're not really trying to attribute it back to a you know dollar per order basis at this juncture, especially because we're also seeing, in the context of the pandemic, uh, different products sell differently throughout different sort of psychological and practical moments. So we're mm -hmm. still also really figuring out like what is the proportion of the business that's going to be in these sort of t-shirts and knitwear you know, category that really doesn't require a whole lot of handholding versus how much of the business is really at these, you know, higher price point, more structured items. So we'll see. But ultimately, you do have to look at it that way. I mean, we're just not at a point where we feel like that specific math um, is a great driver of making decisions over the course of the next year. Got it. So it's now overhead at this point. What's that? It's overhead at this point, basically. Right, right. But it sounds like you keep a pretty good handle on yeah. understanding what your cost structures are. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is, you know, one of the things I, I sort of hammer on people a lot, even in my private practice, is it's it's nice to do good. It's nice to try to do a business you like, but it, the language of business is numbers. And if you don't speak the language, it's hard to know whether you're winning or losing. 
Absolutely. Now, you've got an interesting background. You didn't come up in the world of fashion. You're in the finance world. You started at Morgan Stanley, right? Indeed. That is where I spent the, spent the bulk of my career for 15 years in emerging markets. And so what did you do in emerging, in emerging markets? So I actually was a trader um, and I started out um, as a derivatives trader in foreign exchange, uh, trading an options book. And over time, basically kind of became like the fix it person. So I was in a, a bunch of different parts of the emerging markets businesses across currencies, debt, uh, ultimately credit and some private credit. And um, in the crisis, you know, so many of these businesses got, you know, pretty, pretty banged up uh, across the street. And there was an incredible opportunity to really rebuild them uh, with a super client centric focus. And so that was sort of what I did. You know, I basically um, helped um, rebuild trading, you know, institutional securities businesses over the course of, you know, the latter two thirds of, of my career there. Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed putting the client first, thinking about how we were going to bring together the bank's resources in really collaborative ways to solve, you know, ultimately solve client problems and build teams around that. So I loved it. And so, well, that that explains it. That's clearly the the obvious transition from that into fashion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was an accident. That was an accident. But I think it was that taste of, you know, entrepreneurship first that made the transition to entrepreneurship uh, so much more intuitive. I never in a million years thought that I would end up doing something uh, in the fashion arena whatsoever. But I actually I took a sabbatical in late 2017 because for a very long time, I wanted to align where I was putting my energy really with where I thought the world needed to go and with my personal values. And I had actually left in 07 to go do a degree in energy and environmental policy. So this was just something that was, you know, I was wrestling with for, for a long time. So they were fantastic, did this about, took this sabbatical, ostensibly to, to move into ESG and um, really kind of just fell down the rabbit hole of how incredibly impactful the fashion industry is on the planet in ways that, you know, blew me away. And I thought I was a pretty educated uh, consumer, amongst other things, given my background. And, you know, my own lack of knowledge was was pretty shocking um, and how the, the extent to which fashion is just incredibly behind other consumer products. I mean, you think about food first and foremost, uh, but even areas in like CPG, I mean, fashion is, I would say five to 10 years behind, probably more so if you look at food. Right. And so just a couple of just so listeners know, ESG is? Environmental, social and governance factors. Right. And so from there, so you went, you went to do that. So what, just, what was the, where did the, where did the fashion thing hit? Cause you know, I, I can, I understand the environmental and governance principles in fashion, but yeah, just to study it, that isn't again, an obvious jump was it in your study. Did you come across an issue that captured your attention? You know, it was, it was kind of slowly peeling back the onion, you know, the layers of the onion, because when I first started the sabbatical, you know, I had time on my hands for my first time in I don't know how many years. And I kind of took a little bit of an academic approach to it. And, you know, I actually come from an academic family, so maybe that makes sense. But I remember starting to look into some of the agricultural issues, again, tying it back to some other industries. We don't think about fashion as being an agricultural product, hmm. but basically it is. It's either made out of plastic or it's made out of something that's agricultural in origin. And I started to just be exposed to some of the statistics and I was looking into um, I think at the time it was, you know, pesticide and fertilizer and, uh, and insecticide use in organic cotton was one of the first places that I started. And I was just, you know, I was just amazed. And then, you know, as you start digging, you find more things. And, you know, the extent of the issues uh, really from the raw material stage through every single processing stage and then certainly impacting uh, people, given that, you know, fewer than 10% of garment workers earn a living wage, it was just kind of one horror show after the next <laughs> in an aggregate. I mean, I, I just felt incredibly compelled to be part of the solution. Good for you. And so, and just, you, you've mentioned your values a couple of times, and even back in 2007, yeah. you started that. Where did that come from? Like, why does that matter to you? What was the, was it, was it your parents? Was there something as you grew up, you got aware of it? Like what, what was the thing that made you go, yeah, this, this is something I care about. 
You know, it was just in the water growing up, and I don't think that I really appreciated it. But I was um, I was born in Grinnell, Iowa, which is this tiny uh, liberal arts college town in the middle of Iowa. And, um, you know, really just grew up with this kind of concept of conscious consumerism just in the in the culture, in the community, in my home. You know, one of the earliest um, memories I have was like reading the the Whole Earth Catalog. I loved the Whole Earth Catalog as a kid, and I, st I still have one. Actually, have one in our store to this day. And I think if you boil it down, there was just this this ethos around it of problem solving at the intersection of disciplines that had some fun fundamental kind of value proposition at the other end of it. And so I think it was just. It was sort of an intuitive, you know, intuitive concept for me that was just around from my early days. And so what are some facts you'd, you'd like people to know about fashion? Like I, for, I, I saw um, something you produced, I think it was a video that you said it takes, it would take a person two and a half years to drink as much water as is needed to make a cotton t-shirt. Is that, that I have? Oh, I have yeah, I mean, there's so many stuff, you know, it's interesting. I'm going to, um, uh, I'll, I'll refer people to the website for some of the stats because I think it's always important to have them fact checked and you know footnoted. But what I will say is is the following, which is, you know, over half of clothing that's purchased ends up in a landfill every year. So we've really moved in the last thirty years into this place culturally of thinking about fashion as being disposable, and a lot of that has to do with the fast fashion business models that were literally built around you know planned obsolescence and disposability. So. That's something that I always try and encourage people to get their heads around because really the idea of shifting our mindset to clothing being an asset again is one of the most important things that I think we need to address. So buying things for longevity as opposed to things for, you know, for um, disposability and, you know, kind of seven wares, I think was, you know, one of the big fast fashion uh, case studies, actually. <laughs> I won't name names, wow. but yeah, which is pretty, pretty remarkable. Uh, I think there was a Harvard case study on them. Um, but really, so how does that influence your design? So we, we design for longevity. You know, we design for products to be in a condition where they can be passed down from generation to generation. And, in, you know, really that comes down to product quality as well as product relevance, right? So if you're designing something that's hyper-seasonal, the you know, the probability that you're going to want to wear it the next year or the next year is, you know, relatively low. So we think about design being minimal but interesting and really being, you know, asset quality, heirloom quality product. Like think about your clothes the way you would think about a car, for example. So, you know, I believe deeply in that. And just, you know, on the on some of the impact parts of it, I mean, I would just say, you know, again, it's like thinking, taking like farm to table food and applying that to fashion and really caring about every single part of the processing stage. Um, and I really totally encourage people to look up the sustainability part of our website, to look at the chemical footprint of things like cotton, the water footprint of things like cotton, the animal welfare issues endemic to wool supply chains to even things like silk. So we really look at it as a multifaceted uh, landscape of animal, human and environmental welfare. And I'm happy to dig into any of that. But the reason why I'm careful about statistics is that stats in this industry, a lot of them are built on uh, life cycle analyses that are very specific to certain supply chains and may not be the best benchmarks. And so there's been a lot of kind of debunking of a lot of the statistics that are kind of passed around the industry throughout a lot of articles. Right. So I'm, I'm hyper careful about, um, you know, very specific stats because the truth is like every supply chain is different and we need to get, um, we need to start moving into a much more, much more data rich and accurate environment. I think when we talk about some of these things. Fair enough. So with that, let, let's talk about well, competition, but more more of the industry generally. Like fashion yeah, is sure. notorious for sweatshop labor, unsafe work conditions, yeah. exploitation of workers in developing countries, environmental problems. And the excuse is always that the consumer side demands, you know, cheaper products, partly because yeah. of that fast fashion idea, um, you know, and it pushes everyone to the lowest common denominator. So how do you how do you manage to resist those pressures? You know, it's it's tricky, um, but I think that the reason why consumers 
have, I mean, everyone loves, like, if you, if you can give somebody the same thing that they love cheaper, like, who's, who's, who's not going to want that, right? right? I think that the challenge has been that they've been willing to do that and they followed that um, model because so many of the costs have been invisible to them. Right. So, you know, there's so many extra negative externalities embedded in these businesses. And there is just there's no transparency, no visibility to the consumer that in asking for this thing cheaper, they were making these other trade offs and how it was made. So I think that that building of awareness is a really, really important part of consumer mindset shifts. So storytelling and helping people understand why the decisions that you're making matter is a really big part of that. You also you know, do candidly um, have to make things in a way that's more expensive. And at this point, in some instances, you know, cater to a customer that can that is, you know, has the appetite and ability to, to buy things for, for more longevity. I think the biggest issue in, in fashion right now and in the sustainability conversation is equity, uh, because unfortunately, the very forces that have created the race to the bottom in fashion have been the forces that have really created the massive income inequality that we see on this planet. And it is completely unfair to say that you know everyone should be purchasing asset quality clothing because they just don't have the means to do that. Right. So you know the way that we try and solve for that is creating a higher baseline level of awareness, hopefully having an industry that starts to actually pay living wages which also starts to impact, you know, that some of those um, inequality gaps that are present, you know, worldwide in terms of the consumer population, and move us into a much more sustainable place on both sides. But there's no question that psychologically it's an issue because fashion is one of the few consumer areas that's actually bucked the trend of inflation for the last 20 years and has gotten successively cheaper. Now the pandemic has started to change that in very interesting ways, uh, given some of the supply chain issues. But um, it's it's tough. You know, you've got you've, you've got a lot of cultural forces against you. And what role I mean, this may be a bit philosophical and I don't want you to you know, make people feel guilty, but it's always an interesting conversation in these conversations. It's always so much like the industry side, but on the demand yeah. side, like there's a, what's the responsibility of consumers to educate themselves on these kinds of things? I guess it's it's great to get a cheaper product. But yeah. to your point, the externalities when people are working in horrible working conditions and they're living at sub living wage, you know, living wages, just so that I can get a t-shirt for 97 cents less than somebody else. There's yeah. a piece in there where I think consumers need to own that a little bit, but part of the challenge is an education challenge. You know, yes. you talk to consumers like, I can't look up the supply chain for every one of the 500 products I buy every month. Totally. You know, I, I do think it's it's deeply unfair to put the burden explicitly on consumers. However, what I will say is I think we have to think of ourselves as citizens first and mm -hmm. not just citizens of our you know immediate communities, but global citizens, because that is the way that all of these supply chains are constructed. And it's very much like out of sight, out of mind. And so I think that there is a moral responsibility not to look the other way and at least to remain curious and ask questions while still not asking the consumer to find this perfect item in a system that is inherently pretty broken. And, you know, that's where I say, you know, my advice to consumers generally is ask questions. You know, you may not be able to do three hours of research to find the perfect product. And heck, you may not ever find that perfect product on the, on the, other, on the other side of that research. But if you can be curious and ask questions of the brands that you buy from to demonstrate that you care, then I think that's super important. And then the policy and legislative side of all of this is incredibly important. And no amount of consumer appetite or industry goodwill will do as much as legislative change will. But it all interestingly comes from the same place, which is culture. Mm -hmm. And on that, I'm curious, as someone who's, who's in the space, there's an observation I made, like a cigarette company is not held to standards of, you know, good good social <laughs> policy. But people who yeah. do purport to, there's sometimes an uncomfortable purity test. Like one of the things I try to encourage people on when they're moving down this path toward ethical entrepreneurship is that you're not going to get everything right. Like you yeah. can't enter the business and have every piece of your supply chain just nailed perfectly. Yeah. Have you have you ever experienced any? negative pushback that because somebody's found you know one element of your chain or one part of your product that isn't doesn't meet that purity test 
Like I, I've, I've spoken to a few people who've actually struggled with that, that they've been, they're trying to do it right. And then they get yeah. criticized for the one place that it doesn't. It's, it's a great question. Um, you know, I would say that, you know, we do sometimes get, uh, you know, questions from individuals because there, there are values trade-offs in all of these supply chains, right? And like, I right. think we actually see that most prominently, arguably, in some of our animal welfare trade-offs, where, you know, if you're saying, okay, I'm not going to use anything where you have to harm or kill an animal, you know, the substitute for that, you know, is it is it better or worse from an environmental perspective? There, you know, some at some point, you know, there there is no right answer. And so what we see is we get questions um, for pe from people who might make different values trade-offs than we make, right? Like, we'll get a question of, you know, aren't you better off using silk than viscose? We're like, I don't know, maybe, but we don't want to boil silkworms alive, right? <laughs> so it's like, there are these trade-offs. Um, the way that we've tried to really address it is owning it up front, just saying, look, these are all the myriad ways that we think we could do better. And if you've got any ideas around these ways that we could do better, then we would love to hear from you. <laughs> and this is an area of, you know, constant improvement. And I'm sure that eventually we'll hear from people who think that we can do better in ways where either we haven't thought about it or we actually think we're doing a pretty decent job. Um, but for sure, you know, you definitely open yourself up to it. But I think you, you kind of have to take your approach and kind of enter this space with humility and vulnerability and openness. And it's protection. It's protective as well. Mm -hmm. And I love how on your website, you, you actually talk openly about your supply chain and Super how you've made changes on your supply chain. But there's a few places where it hasn't been nailed. Totally. That, that transparency, I think, is very credibility building. Credit, yeah, it builds your it builds your credible positioning. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, and hopefully it invites collaborative uh, solutions. Right. Like, I mean, it's hopefully we'll hear from people who say, hey, I notice you want to do really like better job of this. We've solved that. Do you want to take a look at this? And that's super helpful and vice versa. Now, when you started, like, did you did you start the business by building out that supply chain first or did you just start with some locals and then evolve it over time? Like it must have been challenging to start from fresh <laughs> to say this is the valid the stake we're going to put in the ground. Yeah, it was. Um... You know, I think for me, because the only reason I entered into this space was because I was passionate about the sustainability side. We were pretty ambitious from the start. Um, definitely also naive <laughs> from the start, but very ambitious from the start. And I think the initial point of frustration was that, you know, once we had our our framework from like a science and values perspective on how we wanted to approach the space from a supply chain standpoint, we basically found that there were almost no existing materials that met both our quality and our sustainability and ethics standards. And so what ultimately ended up happening, which was quite painful at the beginning and now we're in a pretty good space with it, is we had to basically build many of our supply chains from the farm up uh, because we found that certifications, while very helpful, um, you know, aren't the whole story. And for our biggest, most prominent supply chains, where there were major impacts at the raw material level, we really wanted to have that relationship, have that understanding of what was happening on the ground. And so that actually sent me uh, specifically, um, with a lot of help from our VP of sustainability at the time, to Tasmania, to the farms, these two ethical and regenerative farms amongst others, um, where we ultimately ended up sourcing our wool. And we learned so much from that experience that that idea of a farm level, farm traceable relationship has kind of been the gold standard for our business. Now, we can't do it in absolutely everything, speaking to imperfections. Sometimes we do rely on provenance and certifications um, within our standards buckets, but we really think about that as being the, the gold standard. And also the strongest way to, to recreate this sense of connection between the end consumer and the impact they're having when they're buying a product. How big is your team? Uh, we're about 12 right now um, and about a third are part-time and the rest are all full-time and we're based across uh, the U.S., Canada, and we've got uh, one fantastic consultant in Italy. And does this values positioning, has it helped you attract good people and to oh, retain? Yeah. Without a doubt. It's been huge. I think that we're, you know, even before COVID, there was definitely a move toward, um, 
you know, people, super talented people wanting to align themselves with and align their talents in a purposeful way. And so I think it's been absolutely crucial to attracting and retaining talent. And that's only become more the case, particularly in this industry during the pandemic, because I think that the awareness of the ills of the fashion industry has really risen dramatically. And a lot of people who've been working within the industry you know, feel a real sense of kind of atonement almost. Right. Um, and, um, you know, we're, we're excited to, you know, to have a really credible, phenomenal team of people who are, you know, motivated toward the same goals. And do more traditional, not so sustainably oriented businesses, do they pay attention to you? Do they push back on you? Do they try to greenwash around you? Like what's their, what's their response to, I've, like I've met a, a few other people who are trying to do similar things and it's it's interesting to see what the established players, what their reactions are to it. You know, I think that there is um, a kind of baseline cynicism a little bit around sust sustainability being scalable, but I wouldn't attribute that specifically to this industry, but rather to, I think, like the almost more on the you know broader sort of capitalism <laughs> side of things. It's just, oh, isn't that great? They can do that because they're a startup. But, you know, when you scale and rubber hits the road, like how do you actually scale those businesses? And that's something that I've been hyper focused on is the scalability of our business model. But I would say that really actually to the contrary, the industry has been super embracing of us. And that was not something that was going to be a given at all. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've been really heartened by the reception that we've seen from uh, from press, uh, from, you know, incumbent industry players, from the CFDA here in New York. Um, it's been pretty wonderful. And I think that there's just been, it's it's such a genuine atmosphere of um, growing positive intent that I, I think that there's been actually a really positive reception to what we're doing, even if there are a bunch of businesses that maybe don't feel like they could adopt the full set of what we're of what we're doing. So, you know, who knows what people say behind our back? <laughs> I'm not in the room. Um, but I would say, you know, industry super supportive. I think the the pain points or are, are the, the perceived deficiencies are can you can you scale it? And, you know, I'm out there to, to demonstrate that the answer to that question is absolutely yes. And do you believe there's room for lower price fashion to make the same kinds of commitments? I do. You know, I think that at the end of the day, um, you know, quality, exceptional quality comes at a price, right? So can you make exactly what we make cheaper without compromising your values? No, you, you can't, you know, <laughs> but can you make high quality garments nonetheless um, at a lower price point with the same commitments to sustainability and ethics? I think the answer to that question is absolutely yes. Is it going to be more expensive than you know, a $9 t-shirt, it is definitely more expensive than a $9 t-shirt. Like there's no question about that. So there is a baseline level that is required, particularly on the labor side, which is actually, I find to be the area that people really don't want to talk about. You know, it can be super sexy and great for marketing to talk about material science and innovative materials and all of these things and kind of fill the room with that dialogue. But the real conversation, I think, needs to be had first and foremost at the human level. And because if you're not paying living wages and that cuts right down to the you know, cost of production, then yeah. you know, the rest of it's really pretty hollow. Yeah, it's I had a conversation with a client the other day on this topic and we we're saying, you know, you don't get to say to the oil company, I want to pay you 25 percent less for the fuel for my truck. So right. why, why do you get to say to the employee that I want to pay you 25% less than what it costs you to live. Absolutely. There's a cost. Phenomenal to analogy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I see now you talk about fashion as a pathway to activism. What do you what do you mean by that? I thought that was a very interesting phrasing. Yeah, you know, I, I think um, fashion is such a remarkable industry because it is one of the me our most personal means of expression. And yet it so rarely reflects our values. And so there's such an opportunity there in bridging that gap because it's really, it, it signals kind of a sense of, of belonging to like a, to a group, to a tribe, it's a way of expressing yourself. And so 
I think that gap alone is super interesting. And then also saying, okay, well, once once you've bridged that gap and you understand how your value set pertains to fashion, it's kind of a small leap to then thinking about, okay, how can you also engage in a civic context to start to change the landscape of policy and regulation? And so that's one of the things that we try and do uh, through our petition series. So we, we basically bring to our community on roughly now a quarterly basis, petitions that we think can really move the needle in the industry and where people can have a voice even independent of buying anything. That's awesome. Now you, you. you don't just play in fashion though. You you play around some interesting environments, right? Like you're on the Accountability Council, the Car yeah. Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard, the Trust for Public Land. So, you know, one, one obvious question is how do you manage to do all of that <laughs> while running a scaling <laughs> business? Uh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I, think I, I actually ask it for a, for a specific reason, because most entrepreneurs are like, I'm too busy to be able to do anything else. But yes, you seem to be, you know, putting your values and your passions across the board. You know, I find that I'm at my best when I can operate in the context of like my full brain. And so if I can scratch the itch over here, like I'm I'm better over there. And, and you know, there's a lot of connectivity between these different spaces, but you do have to be really disciplined about your time. There's no question about that. And there are certain areas where I have, you know, scaled back commitments just out of like total necessity and, and also out of, you know, deference to the organization and what they need from you. But those are the three that I'm deeply committed to. And for different reasons, you know, trust for public land, um, is a remarkable organization that's really focused on land for people. And they started out as a conservation organization and then really started doing um, incredible um, urban parks work that really is kind of all about a 10 minute walk and serving, um, you know, serving low income uh, communities in, in particular. And I'm just such a deep believer in what they do and the kind of fabric of society that they're building, not to mention actually the climate resilience of what they're doing. And so I'm on their their New York advisory board um, and just believe deeply in what they do. And then, you know, between what I do at the Car Center at Harvard and Accountability Council, it really comes back to that idea of, um, well, in the Car Center case, you know, it is, it is really human rights focus, which as I just referenced is crucially important within this industry. And on the Accountability Council side, um, you know, I'm a deep believer in transparency and accountability, and that kind of harks back also to my work in, in emerging markets. So it, it all sort of ties together for, for me. It makes sense <laughs> for me personally. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't, have, I, don't, I don't have a robust social life outside of <laughs> So if something has to give, it's basically dinner. Right. <laughs> So with that, with those kind of organizations, like, can we get a little bit philosophical? Like I, yeah. I personally, I personally believe that entrepreneurship is a very powerful, positive force for positive social change. But, you know, I have friends who don't agree with that. We have some really, really interesting conversations about this. And they'll say things like, you know, you're trying to fix the problems that capitalism creates by using the capitalist system and kind of at a meta level that just reinforces because you're, you're preserving the status quo system. Like, yeah. what's your take on that? Can you solve can you solve the problems of a system within the system? So cop out answer, I'm going to say yes and no. You know, I think at the, the end of the day, um, we all have to work to live. Right. So if you're going to work to live, you may as well align the way that you work with the direction that you think the world needs to go. Um, but I really think it's an and, not an or. And that's really where I was talking about, like the policy and the regulatory change needing to be a complement to what we do on the business side. You know, we can't all quit our jobs and just focus on policy change, right? But nor do I think that we need to continue doing jobs that we don't believe in and, and just continue and just focus on the policy change side. I think we can actually build businesses that do have a stakeholder model of capitalism embedded in them while simultaneously working to change the, you know, the underpinnings of, you know, how our global society works. I'm not willing to throw capitalism out with, you know, baby out with the bathwater because I don't think that we've come up with a better system, but it's clear that this system needs to do a heck of a lot better because it is definitely not delivering for the seven, eight billion people on this planet in a consistent mm -hmm. way. And sometimes I think the conversations get too binary as if- Yeah capitalism and socialism are fixed concepts. Um, one of the ideas I've 
come across, you know, in the last couple of years that I found interesting is more that it's not a it's not a spectrum that has two ends to it, capitalism on one side and socialism on another, but it's that there's an ecosystem and different players work in different ways. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like, A, whether you buy that model and then how you see, because you've talked about, you know, legislation, but that's one piece. So we've got, we have business, we've got academia, we've got civil society, we've got government, and they can all contribute or detract from what the objectives are. Yeah. Oh, wow. We could talk about this for hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, just given your background, I thought you might have. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I, I think um, at a baseline level, as a society, we have to figure out what we value. And then once you figure out what we really value, what's non-negotiable, then the system has to change around that. Right. So right now we're basically in a spot where we're saying, you know what, living wages are negotiable, you know, and I don't really want to hear about it. Right. And so the system is reflective of that reality because we haven't decided that's a non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. If we determine as a society living wages are non-negotiable. And I think, in, you know, there are some, you know, there are some places on this planet where that is true and the economic systems are reflective of that. But we have to get to a place where we figure out where those non-negotiables are as a society. Same thing, I think you could argue for deforestation. You know, is you know is deforestation of ancient environment, ancient and um, you know um, forests not a non-negotiable? Apparently, it's not a non-negotiable, and the system reflects that. So, I really I think it's a values-first conversation, and then everything else really stems from that. Now, to get there, I think the the cost has to be visible because as long as the cost is invisible, then you know, you're never going to get to that place. But once people really say, "Oh my gosh, this is this is the actual social and environmental and cost of future generations of all of these things." I think then we can start to have a real dialogue about what those non-negotiables are and reconstruct a system around that. And that'll be reflective of in policy, in uh, governments, in business, I mean, you you name it. Um, but we're not there yet. It's a, we're very much, I think it's, it's an evolution. Um, and there's a great book um, by this economist, uh, Mariana Mazzucato, who I, who I really appreciate. She wrote this book, she actually has a new one out, but the, the last book was, uh, the value of everything. And it really talks about how as a society, um, and maybe that's too broad a term because it encompasses you know, a diverse range of value systems, but we really started to think about value in terms of literally do dollar signs. And it's, it's right. time to really rethink you know, what is the basis of value. And, and I think that there's just a, there's a massive amount of work that we need to do in conversation to get there. It's interesting, a number of years ago, there was a, a political leader in Canada here who actually, it, it amazed me because in an interview, he actually said out loud that this is not a time to be discussing vision. And I thought, wait, what? This is gonna be all over the headlines tomorrow, right? Like that's yeah. a federal leader has just said vision is not, like that's word one in most, <laughs> most leadership textbooks. Yeah. And yet that's where we kind of are. Everything is tactical rather than thinking about you know, values and referencing books. There's a there's an environmental scientist named Catherine Hayhoe who has written a book called Saving Us. Um, mm. And her whole argument or approach to have conversations about climate is to start with the shared values. Yeah. Start with a debate about the science, about the climate. Start with a discussion about what are our shared values and then what is happening, how we actually implement those values. So I think you're, you, you share some, some, good company with your thoughts on that <laughs> well, i look forward to reading that thank you um now you you're also an investor in some early stage businesses and yeah. you know i work with people from startup to you know much more significant growth and there's an interesting thing that happens right that people start with these purity ideas and social change and i'm going to run my business a certain way and then they hit the realities, right? There's inflation, there's cost pressures, it's hard to find good people. And then they start rationalizing those sort of small values compromises. And then those, you know, you get bumped off course a little bit. And after a couple of years, you're way off here. As an investor, you know, apart from looking at your financial uh, stewardship, do you, 
how do you monitor or manage that kind of ongoing commitment to values of the people? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, well, part of it is in the actual company selection process. So, you know, interestingly, um, I generally haven't invested in consumer companies. I've invested in a couple. Um, uh, and actually, they, they have not worked out. Um, but the ones <laughs> that have, the ones that have, um, and, and where my attention is focused is really on, um, on companies that are explicitly solving for solutions that catalyze change, really kind of mostly in the B2B landscape um, and contributing in the process to kind of broader normative change as well. So one of the ones that um, I really love is a company called Acclima, uh, which makes um, kind of micro sensors for the top 20 greenhouse gases and also gives away these data, incredible data sets as a public good. Um, so that's a great example of, you know, a company that is delivering something of value to industry while at the same time actually contributing to, you know, transparency, normative change, and actually incredible uh, data sets that are really valuable on the, on the civic side. So love what they do. Um, another company in the material science space is really like an incredible unlock in the, in the textile space. So, you know, I really look at, at those types of solutions that are um, commercially viable, that are delivering a product that is better than what's currently on the market and have a much bigger picture kind of ripple effect throughout the industry. So I haven't had to deal with it um, too much um, as as an investor. But, you know, I look, I, I feel it as an entrepreneur and I definitely have that lens looking forward. And I think that for investors, it's, you know, you've got to think about like, what are those KPIs? Because if they're just financial, then that's a problem. And you've got to tell to the people that you're actually investing in that, you know, these are the KPIs. If I'm going to invest in your follow-on round, it's not just about these like bottom line metrics and customer acquisition metrics. It's also about delivering on your goals on the sustainability side. And you've got to be willing to actually stick with it. So if the financial metrics look phenomenal and they're backsliding and everything else, you know, are you actually willing to say, you know what, I'm going to sit this one out. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky balance, but I think that being really explicit about what you care about how are you going to measure it? And really holding firm to that narrative is is super important, especially when you're you know you're you're saying that you're going to invest in follow-on rounds. And in your business, have you invested a fair amount of time in the systems of monitoring? Like one of the things I've talked about with clients when we do culture work and values work is, if you don't have systems to back up your values. I mean, the yeah. classic example is a construction company that says they have a value of safety and they have a value of productivity but the only metrics they have are around productivity targets and the only incentives they have are around productivity targets. Yep. All of a sudden on a snowy day, which gives and your, totally. your systems are supporting the productivity preference over the safety preference. And yeah. so you need to have this. So like how much of monitoring of the, of, of the values that you're pursuing are built into the process. So, you know, in terms of product development, it is super, rigid actually i think frustratingly so probably for many people <laughs> in the design process um you know it bugs the heck out of people but th those standards are, are are super um you know at the individual product level very clear in the aggregate you know we measure in a couple of different ways i mean one holistically as a business uh, we are b corp and i love the b corp framework as really being um kind of a, a snapshot of where you are and a continued sort of health test in terms of where you're going and using that framework across all parts of the business doesn't encompass everything it's not perfect for every industry but it's useful it's very useful um, we also uh, do detailed work on our overall um, emissions footprint so we're really excited about that and we actually recertify every year so we get very clear sense of where are um, our biggest areas of improvement and how do you measure that on a year to year basis and make sure that, you know, our, our sustainability plan is explicitly geared toward um, con consistent improvement and that that trickles down into how we do product, how we do product delivery, the whole nine yards. Where we find that um, the pain is, is kind of in where I defer to the beginning, which is really detailed metrics on water, on chemicals, on you know all of those things because we're still just not good as an industry yet on having that level of you know micro measurement uh, across the the value chain in a super consistent way if you have a diversity of products so 
we still need to do better there. And there's, you know, technology is improving all the time in that space. But that's a that's a mushy area where we love to have more hard data that we can hold ourselves accountable to. You've been super generous with your time. So I just I want to finish up with a little rapid fire all right. uh, around the business. So well, one decision or action that most helped you get you where you are. Oh, gosh. Um this is not a rapid fire answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> bravery, just you got to go for it. Just trust your gut. And if you had to do it over? I do the same thing all over again. You wouldn't change anything? No, I would. I mean, I, I, of course I would. I would say I would. This has been a real lesson in um, humility and asking questions and getting comfortable being um, the dumbest person in every single part of the business. And I think you just ask more questions earlier. I am so glad you said that. I ask this question a lot. I think that's one of the better, like humility, I believe is actually one of the most underrated uh, values in leadership. Yeah, I think humility and discipline go a long way. Mm -hmm. On the days you enjoy most, you can be found doing what? Ooh. Some of my happiest days, and I haven't had the opportunity in a little while on the farm. Really love the days on the farm. Um, but my happiest days with the team are really diverse days. You know, I'm doing all kinds of different things in a given day and solving all kinds of different unique uh, problems in a collaborative way. And what's one aspect of running a business you've yet to master? Work-life balance. Mm. Now, two last questions, and they're at a personal level. So one personal quality that you most had to improve or overcome? Uh, vulnerability. Well, you've overcome that very well. I haven't seen any obstacles with that today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that was, a, that was a big one, especially coming off of a trading floor in finance. That was a big one. And well, yeah, I bet. <laughs> One personal quality that most contributed to your success. So no false humility. Where do you, where do you rock? Optimism. Ah, nice. That's a good one. Yeah. So where can people find you and find the great selection of clothes? Yeah. Uh, you can find us at another tomorrow, all one word, dot co. So another tomorrow dot co. And in addition to um, exploring the collection, I really advocate that people look for the petitions under the magazine section and dig into our deep dive sustainability section. Um, you can find us in real life in New York City at the corner of Perry and Bleecker at 384 Bleecker. We have our flagship store there. Um, and you can also find us um, on Matches Fashion um, in the UK and uh, a, a select number of other um, other places. So we hope you come find us and on Instagram at another tomorrow. And I really encourage people to check out your site. I think for anyone who's interested in these kinds of conversations and how to market it and how to present themselves. I think you've done a really exemplary job of transparency and how your business operates that gives you just massive amount of credibility. I think it's a, a great case study in how to do that, do that right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And so thank you very much. I really appreciate your time and I wish you continued success on your journey. Thank you. I love this and I've really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate the opportunity. Cheers. Hi, it's Warren Coughlin here. Thank you so much for listening to the Business That Matters Spotlight. If you're a successful, values-driven entrepreneur who makes a difference while making a profit and you'd like to be on this program, please visit warrencoughlin.com slash podcast slash apply. That's Warren, C-O-U-G-H-L-I-N dot com